My name is Colleen Cronin. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brown Daily Herald, and I am talking to you today from Providence, Rhode Island. It is Friday, October 30th. It's snowing here on College Hill, although tomorrow is Halloween. And uh, this is our second episode of the COVID pod, the Brown Daily Herald's bi-weekly podcast about public health with uh, Dr. Ashish Shah, uh, the Dean of the School of Public Health. Um, We've already introduced you to Dr. Shah in our previous episode, and you've been introduced to Kate Ryan, a senior science and research editor, and also the producer and sound engineer for this podcast. Shout out to Kate. But we have two new faces here that we wanted to introduce you to. So Amelia and Rachma, tell us who you are and, and what you do for the Herald's. My name is Amelia Sagatita, and I am a science and research section editor at the Brown Daily Herald. And hi, everyone. My name is Rahma Ibrahim, and I'm a science and research senior staff writer. Amelia and Rachma are amazing. They do great coverage for the science and research section, and they also have been really influential in getting this podcast going, coming up with questions, and they also do a Q&A with Dr. Shaw on the weeks that we don't do the podcast, so check those out on our website. Um, today's episode in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election, uh, we talk about the safety of early voting, um, what's going on in Europe right now. And also we got a little bit of a possible prediction on whether or not Brown could have double or triple commencement in the future. So stay tuned to the very end to see what Dr. Jaw's prediction was, is. And uh, if you have any questions, email us. Before we get into sort of the more public health uh, questions, we had two very important, quick other questions that we wanted to ask okay. you. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, I'm a little nervous now because <laughs> the public health stuff feels really comfortable. But I'm a little worried about where you guys are going, and but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Well, they might be controversial questions. Um, Ooh. <laughs> first, we just wanted to ask you from the last time we had you on the podcast, we asked if you had tried calamari and we wanted to ask, did you end up trying coffee milk? I did try coffee milk. I had it at uh, Dave's. Yes, love it. And uh, it's very good. It's a little sweet. So I felt like I was like having dessert in the morning, but, uh, but I actually really enjoyed it. And I think of it now, like in the future, it's going to be more of an afternoon drink for me. I don't think I want to start the morning with it, but, um, but in the future. And I have other places to try still, so yeah. I think Dave's is a very good one to try, though. Do you have do you have recommendations for other ones? There used to be some in the Ratty that was pretty good, but alas, we haven't ventured it there in a while. But when it opens up again, I will recommend that you head there and, and try try theirs. And then the other the other question that we had that is very important is: Do you have a costume picked out for Halloween? Slash, do you have any plans for this weekend? What's been interesting is we have three kids. Our oldest two are fifteen and thirteen, and so like a few years ago, you know, and then the third one is eight. Um, a few years ago, everybody wore costumes. It was all like a... And then the last couple of years, the 15-year-old has become a little too cool for this. And the 13-year-old is certainly interested in no input from us on what she's going to do. So my wife and I are both putting all of our attention on on uh, the 8-year-old, who probably does not want as much attention as he's getting. Yeah, so I, don't, I haven't personally dressed up in a while, um, but I, you know... But a lot of it is like just energy and making sure they do it. Of course, the other thing this year is everybody's trying to figure out how do we make Halloween safe? So uh, that's kind of a different interesting question. But uh, no, Halloween is great. And I'm sorry I don't have a more interesting answer than uh, 
I don't have one myself. That's okay. I think we're probably all going to just pick things out of our own closet to to hang out with our pod <laughs> and and celebrate. That's right. So then switching focus to public health, uh, just sort of wondering what's been on your mind this week? What have you been following? Ooh, it's been a it's been a pretty interesting week. I think I'm trying to think of what is going on. Um, one issue that certainly has come up over and over again uh, is Europe and what is happening in Europe and the fact that a bunch of European countries are heading towards lockdown. And everybody's asking, is this our future? So let's, should we maybe take a couple of minutes to talk about that, just because I think it's uh, so front of mind. And obviously, the other thing everybody's been thinking about this week is elections, and I'm happy to talk about elections uh, in our country as well. Uh, but in terms of Europe, you know, they started seeing increases in cases uh, in early to mid-August. And one of the things that keeps happening with this virus is um, people just don't take, uh, when virus, the, when the virus starts kind of increasing in the community, we see this over and over again, people just don't take it seriously for, for a long time. Because, you know, the numbers are increasing and it, it looks, because people think linearly and the virus acts exponentially, right? So if you get 100 cases one week and then two weeks later it's 200 cases, you're like, eh, it's an additional 100. And then two weeks later, it's 400, and you're like, okay, it's 200. People just don't recognize that what we're talking about is a doubling, and this is exponential growth. And at some point, you get to like thousands, and you're doubling. And, and that's where it gets really, really scary. And, uh, and essentially, I think Europe ignored all the warning signs. And again, I understand Europe is not a country, so everybody's done it a little differently. Uh, Germany has been much, much better, but even they are uh, getting into trouble. But France and Spain and UK essentially acted like the pandemic was over. The pandemic isn't over. And it is a cautionary tale for us because um, for all of August and September and much of early October, these countries were saying, we're never going to lock down again. We're not doing it. This, that was in the past. We're not doing it. It was too painful. And they're starting to do it. And, and no one locks down because you wake up one morning and say, I really want to shut our economy down. Like, you wake up one morning and you say, my gosh, I've run out of every other option. I have nothing else left. And that's when you do it. And so the, so the key lesson here is to not get there, not find yourself in that position. And as a country, we're, I mean, again, our outbreaks are so different in different places. But we're, in some places, they're already there. Like they, I don't know how much longer they can avoid lockdowns. In other places, like I think about New England, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, we're probably a few weeks away from that. And so if we don't do anything serious now, then in a few weeks, we're going to find ourselves unable to continue, um, which is why I was heartened this week to hear Governor Raimondo uh, both come out on Wednesday with some, I think, pretty tough talk. Uh, and then today, I think we're going to hear some policy actions, and that's going to be important. Uh, we can wait three weeks, and then we will have no choice but to uh, do a much more aggressive um, lockdown, and we don't want to do that. Something that you just hit on a little bit that I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about as well. You know, in the United States, we just surpassed 9 million cases. Yesterday, we recorded 90,000 new infections. And those numbers are so huge. And I think you're talking about how people will see these increases as small. And then I think when they look at the big picture, they see huge numbers. And I think 
some people have trouble grasping them and they get sort of numbers fatigue. And I'm curious as a, a public health expert, how do you break those numbers down or present them so that people really understand them? Um, and are there any sort of other numbers that you're thinking of that can sort of help people uh, get the severity of what's going on? Right. Um, so one thing um, I do try to do to do is in all of my kind of communications, I mean, talk a little bit about national numbers, but mostly I try to keep all the conversations about numbers at the state level because people have a better feel for what their state size is. And so if Massachusetts is recording a thousand new cases a day, people in Massachusetts have a sense of what that means. Um, there are two problems with the national number. One is it gets very big and people can't really quite understand what, what 90,000 is. But also, nobody lives in America. People live in Massachusetts. They live in Rhode Island. They live, right? And so if I told you there's a really horrible outbreak happening in North Dakota, which it is, you'd say, well, that's terrible, but I don't know that that changes my personal behavior. But if I told you there's a really bad outbreak happening in Massachusetts, that might change your behavior, right? So one is to contextualize it kind of more locally. But the second thing is um, to talk about things that also people can relate to. Because we do know that a chunk of people who get infected do fine. Um, but what people really do care about is, and, and feel it much more is when they start seeing hospitalizations going up. And so when you realize there are more and more people uh, in hospitals today than there were two weeks ago. Nationally, hospitalizations are up about 20% over the last two weeks, about 30 to 40% over the last month. And hospitalizations, because they're a late indicator, um, are going to continue rising at least for the next month. And once you know that you're kind of baked, you've baked in a month of increasing hospitalizations, um, that I think people, that's something people relate to. Obviously, deaths also people relate to, but um, hospitalizations and deaths feel much more uh, substantive to people than number of infections. Um, the hardest part is that there are a group of people uh, really led in some ways now by the White House's uh, chief health advisor, Scott Atlas, who are trying to convince people that these two things are not related, that there's no relationship between how many people are infected and how many people get hospitalized and die. And it just flies in the face of all the data and all, the, all sort of logic as well, that as more people get infected, not everybody's going to get hospitalized, but over time more and people will get hospitalized, more and more people will die. And, um, and so it's almost a, hey, don't pay any attention to infections. They don't matter. But they do matter because they're a harbinger of, of bad things to come. You know, on that note of contextualizing the cases locally, um, so we spoke last week and the week before about the numbers in Rhode Island increasing. And with that, we've also seen the numbers in Brown increasing. And so we were wondering if the state's coronavirus situation um, could be bleeding into the brown bubble, and if so, like how? How is that happening? Yeah, so I, you know, uh, in my mind, it would be almost impossible for it to not bleed in a little bit. So let's talk about how that would happen. Um, you know, brown is not a bubble, right? And and the students are not a bubble, and the faculty and staff are not a bubble. And you can start with faculty and staff, which are easiest to see. Um, they go to grocery stores on weekends. They go, they see their friends who are not people, you know, members of the Brown community. They, they do all of these things that get them interacting with the community. In normal times, we see that as a good thing. Like we want people to be deeply embedded in the community. Uh, we don't want a Brown bubble. Uh, but, and, and you can imagine the student version of that. I mean, some students may stay on campus and 
never leave campus and really stay tight in their pod. But there are a lot of people living off campus. Uh, those people living off campus might go and, and go to a restaurant. They might go um, interact with friends who are, again, who might have graduated from Brown. Like you can imagine all the interactions that we all have in our lives that are not linked to Brown. And so it has always been true that our ability to do anything is, is deeply tied to what, what is happening in, in Providence and in Rhode Island more generally. And uh, so as we see cases increasing in Rhode Island, infections increasing in Rhode Island, uh, it has always been my expectation that we will see more infections on our uh, campus. And we are seeing that, and I am, you know, you know, you can't see me, but I'm actually literally reaching out and touching wood here, that like, you know, my hope is that um, the two things happen. One is from a policy point of view, we can manage infections in the, in the community. Um, and it's not just policy, it's also individual behavior, but it certainly is also policy. And so I want to see more action from the governor, which I think is coming. Um, and then we've got to also keep working on protecting the Brown community. And so if we can do work on both ends, uh, I think we can get through the next four or six weeks. But, um, but, there, but the fate of both are intrinsically li- uh, tied to each other. And then on a sort of separate note, you mentioned the election earlier, and we were sort of wondering if you could, I guess, reflect on how voting um, has been going so far in terms of COVID, because we know like early voting is already taking place. And then um, next week, people are going to be heading to the polls on Tuesday. So do you think that that will impact the coronavirus curve um, and what precautions are happening at voting centers? There's so many complex issues here. I mean, one is obviously the safest way to vote is to vote by mail, right? You don't have to leave your home um, for a variety of reasons. And again, much of it uh, baffling to me. We've made voting by mail this incredibly complicated political thing. And it's unfortunate uh, because in the ideal world, that's what you would do. But fine. We are where we are on voting by mail. So let's think about voting in person. So I voted last Saturday uh, in person, early voting. And it was fine. It was totally safe. Um, I had to wait outside for maybe 20 minutes. And, and so I was very lucky. And, uh, and it was a pretty painless experience. But as, I, as I'm watching data come in and talking to people, I mean, obviously, the biggest issue in my mind is a lot of people are having to have long waits. They're having to stand outside for four, six, eight hours. Um, we can have a different conversation at some point about the state of our democracy and why we make voting so difficult. But staying focused on, on the coronavirus, um, waiting in long lines, obviously, is uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous from a Again, you should be wearing a mask. You should not, uh, you know, and people generally, when you look at the photos, people are reasonably distanced. And you're outside. Like, it's really safe. So the only risk period, in my mind, is when you're indoors, when you go inside into the polling booth. So we typically tend to think of risk uh, with this virus as exposure for at least 15 minutes. So if you go in and spend five to 10 minutes it's, it's just much, much less likely that you're going to pick up the virus. Uh, people rarely pick up the virus in, in a couple of minutes. Um, but most places I've seen, the poll workers are all wearing a mask. Again, you should continue wearing your mask when you go indoors. There's a reasonable amount of distancing. You know, there's all this stuff about people, should they bring their own pen? I'm like, if you want to bring your own pen, you can bring your own. But in general, like, don't bother bringing a pen because you may have the wrong color. And then, like, just use the pen they're going to give you. So again, this sort of obsession with fomite transmission that I'm going to pick it up by touching a pen, 
You know, no, I have not seen any cases of anybody picking it up. Like, again, don't, if you see a pen, don't pick it up and lick it. Don't, like, don't do weird things. But just, and then bring some hand sanitizer. But most places also have it. All of this is my way of saying, if you act like a normal person and you go in and you, and especially if you, if you are concerned, do your homework beforehand, look at a, a sample ballot, know who you're going to vote for. If there's a bunch of ballot questions, read them beforehand so you're not like trying to think about, do I support this or do I not? Like make your decisions, go in, vote and leave. It'll take you five, 10 minutes at the most and it'll be very, very safe. So I really believe that in-person voting is extremely safe. Um, it is probably safer than going to a grocery store. And um, if you're somebody who feels uncomfortable going to a grocery store for five minutes, then I understand. But from a safety point of view, I am unworried that voting is going to lead to any, uh, to any spikes. Just not worried about it at all. I don't think – so that's why I've been telling people, like, you should vote and you should not let coronavirus slow you down uh, in terms of voting. Vote early if you can, but if you can't, show up and, and vote on Election Day. I think one thing that some of us are thinking about is that in the aftermath of whatever comes on Tuesday, whether or not we have an answer Tuesday night or Wednesday or later than that, um, I think people expect that there could be a lot of protests and a lot of, um, you know, gather large gatherings. Things are getting a little bit colder, so maybe some of those gatherings would be shifting inside, who knows, but I'm curious what you think about that, if you're worried about that, and um, if you have any tips for people when they, you know, if they do feel the need to go out there and, and voice their opinions after the election. Yeah, yeah, I, so to be perfectly honest, I am worried about that. I am worried about how the election is gonna go. Um, I'm hoping for a decisive answer, uh, maybe not on Tuesday night, but in the day or two that follows. But certainly, if people feel like the election process has not been legitimate, then you're going to see large uh, amounts of, I think, protests and, and, and uh, people expressing uh, frustration and anger. And, and I think they have a right to. Like, that is literally a key part of democracy is the ability of people to express themselves. Much of the evidence so far, when I think about the Black Lives Matter protests, for instance, um, over the summer and, and other is that protests have not led to large outbreaks. And I have to tell you, I, I've been surprised. When the protests were happening, um, you know, there were probably, I actually wrote a bunch of like Twitter threads and others where I said, I'm worried that this is going to cause more cases. And I understand we're weighing a set of issues here and people feel genuinely and legitimately angry about systemic racism in our country. And I understand and, su and support people's um, desire to speak out against it. But we're still in a pandemic and the virus doesn't care. And I said I was worried. And then uh, uh, probably about a month or six weeks later, wrote a piece in which we really tried going through all the protests, where they occurred, the size, and try to look for increases in infections following it. Didn't see it. Couldn't see it at all. Uh, so it turned out that I was worried. And I, I mean, I don't know if I shouldn't have been, but it turned out that my worry turned out wrong. It, it wasn't that bad. So all of that is to say, if we can keep protests outside, if people can wear masks, um, protests are inherently hard to do social distancing in, but to the extent that people can, or if you're, gonna, if you're in a little pod, if you can stay in that pod largely, uh, all of that would be super duper helpful. I do worry about people who then go indoors and that stuff is gonna get risky. So uh, again, my hope is that we just have a clean election, we have a clean result, people feel like it's legitimate and we can move forward. But 
if not, I don't think there's any like telling people don't do this, don't protest. I think people are going to uh, want to express themselves. And as I said, I'm very supportive of that. I think we're all going to have to think about how do we not then also put people's lives and health at risk. The last time we we spoke on the podcast, um, you sort of left us with, I think, what a lot of people felt was a really hopeful note um, about possibly, you know, emerging from into some sort of sense of normalcy in what could be a couple months or, you know, when we get a vaccine or a good therapeutic. And I'm curious if there is a one piece of good news that you've seen this week that really stands out to you as something hopeful that people can, can think about. Uh, and then as we're in sort of a turbulent political time as well. So I think as a general rule, um, all of what I'm hearing around vaccines and therapeutic timelines are continuing to move forward in the in the right direction. Again, uh, sometimes the absence of bad news is the good news. Uh, so I remain optimistic that we'll have a vaccine or two authorized this year um, and, and more widely available early next year. I think the one interesting thing that happened this past week was that, um, you know, in the public health community, there are many different voices. And obviously, we don't all agree with each other. We don't all confer with each other. We, we do talk, obviously. But um, I thought, I think this week, you saw a real convergence of public health experts from across the political spectrum, from someone like Scott Gottlieb, who's been terrific, super thoughtful. He was the first FDA commissioner for President Trump. Like he's not some, you know, well, I'm not going to say what he's not, but he's not, you know, but he's not like a liberal Democrat. He's not a politico of that. And he came out and said, we need a national mask mandate. And Tony Fauci, who's been hesitant to say that, came out and said, we need one. And you saw a real convergence among experts from a variety of political backgrounds saying, um, we've got to take action and, and here are certain things that, that need to happen. Um, we are unfortunately in a situation where when you get that kind of convergence, you tend to get political leaders to respond because they think, wow, it's really hard to argue this is partisan. Um, right now, because of the of the election cycle and because of our political leadership in Washington, there just hasn't been the kind of response that I was hoping. But um, but it gave me hope that um, that at least in the public health and the healthcare community, people could put aside their uh, political differences and all kind of try to rally around a national strategy. Um, the hard part will be whether we can we can get that implemented or not. It, look, I I think the key kind of bottom line is there there's no easy way out of the next six to twelve weeks, right? So um, basically, November, December, January are just going to be hard months. They may be easier if we are smart now. They will be harder if we wait. Um, but that's a time frame that I think people just need to understand that we need to hunker down at this point. Um, one of the huge problems of this administration has been they keep saying things like, this is going to go away, that we're around, bend, you know, rounding the corner. What that does is it tells people that they can let their guard down, that they don't have to make investments in, in getting through a time period. And I think it's been incredibly harmful. And so the message I want to leave people with is like, there's nothing about the next three months that are going to be easy and fun, and, and, and we're not getting through this without some amount of difficulty. But if you can find a strategy to get yourself through the next two to three months, it'll get better. And it'll get better, and like, you know, I don't know if it'll start getting better in January or February, but it will start getting better somewhere in that time frame, I think, because 
I think we'll have a vaccine. I think we'll have a lot of vaccines out. Uh, not like broad population, but healthcare workers. Uh, I think we'll have a ton more testing available. And I'm hopeful that by January, February, um, we will be uh, in a better place than we are now. And, and the spring semester at Brown will feel more comfortable. It'll still be hard. Like, again, I don't want to make it look like it will be back to normal. But I'd rather be on the trajectory towards things getting better than things getting worse. And, and right now we're in a little bit of a period where things are going to get a little worse before they get better. Thank you so much. I think us seniors are hoping that maybe next semester will be normal enough that we will get a commencement and there won't be a triple commencement in 2022 at Brown. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an interesting question. Um, whether you'll be able to have a commencement in, in May, mid, mid May, late May, is that about when it is? Yeah, hopefully. I, I, I'm gonna go out on a limb, I, I shouldn't, but I will, and say I think you'll have commencement in, in late May. And you know, it may be a little modified, it may not be totally normal, and you may need to do more things outdoors, and there may be fewer indoor stuff. Um, and people will have to wear masks. But the question will be like, can your family travel to Providence? Um, that kind of stuff. I think there's a better than even chance that we'll be able to do it in May. Let's keep our fingers crossed and work towards it. Thank you so, so much. Stay safe, stay warm out there with the snow in Providence. And we just appreciate having you um, talk to us. We, it's always, we always learn something new, so thank you. Oh, it's so much fun. Thank you. and. Um, Think about other uh, coffee milk suggestions, which I'm happy to try. And oh, let me just throw out one more thing. So I tried my first PV donuts. They're pretty good, pretty good. Uh, but the problem was it was going to be a little, um, I don't want to call it donut derby, but it was going to be a you know need versus PV donuts. And, and I was doing it on Wednesday. A couple of, uh, an undergrad and, a, and an MPH student had, uh, but I had set this up, but we found out that need is closed on Wednesdays. And so we could only do PV donuts. So the next time I'm going to do a true taste test and maybe we can talk about it in one of the future podcasts. We would love that. Although that is definitely a controversial topic that BDH tries not to weigh into. I understand like you guys are willing to push the boundaries on tough stuff, but there's some topics I just maybe too. Um, are you willing to weigh in at this point on your personal choices or, or do you feel like uh, that would be too polarizing in this moment in our country? I think it's too polarizing, I have to say. I appreciate that. I get it. All right. All of you, stay well, stay safe, and I look forward to being back in touch. This podcast was produced by the Brown Daily Herald. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, browndailyherald.com. The music was created and composed by Catherine Beggs, a Brown University undergraduate student. Please feel free to reach out with any questions on our Twitter, Instagram, or via email at herald at browndailyherald.com. Thanks for listening and tune in in two weeks on November 13th for our third episode.